If you don't mind, I'm going to take my jacket off. I like something Abraham Lincoln said one time. He said when he goes to church and the preacher is preaching, he likes to see a man who appears to be fighting wasps. You like that too? I tend to get pretty excited, pretty heated up. Oh well, you're stuck with me. Praise God. I don't seem to be able to calm down that well. <laughs> Brother Adam posts these little, what are they, mini videos or whatever they are? So I see, I, I try not to watch videos of myself, but I see those on Facebook and so on. You see a few seconds of myself and I go, oh my Lord, help the people. It's a walk of faith, believe me. Okay, Acts chapter 3. Let's start in the Word of God in Acts chapter 3. You know how much I love the book of Acts, praise God. This bridge between the Gospels and us. Showing us how to do it. Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none. I'm going to stop right there this morning. That's my main text for this morning. Silver and gold have I none. You know, that part of the verse I don't think gets enough attention because we're always in a hurry and anxious to get on to the wonderful healing that takes place. And it's, that healing is wonderful. We've, we've given that healing a good amount of attention over the years. I'd like to just stop right here and give attention to this part of the Word of God. Silver and gold have I none. I'm going to stay right here and I have to tell you, I have had to say, I have had occasion to say that in my life. How about you? Silver and gold have I none. Stop. <laughs> Peter didn't have any money. And the significance of the context when he says this is really heavy with meaning. Praise God. He didn't have any money because of a choice that he had made. He chose to pursue the will of God rather than money. (laughs) And he chose a path whose end was predictable. When he chose that path, the sensible people in the world would say, Peter, 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 what are you doing? There's a good chance you're going to wind up without any silver or gold. And, you know, those sensible people, their prediction panned out. Peter, you choose that path in life. Poverty becomes a big maybe, maybe even a probably. Preaching doesn't always uh, lead to riches. Of course, Jesus was the greatest man that ever lived. And would you grant him this to the greatest preacher that ever lived. Oh, I will will give Jesus that in one second. Greatest man that ever lived, greatest preacher that ever lived, and during his ministry years, he could say this as well, silver and gold have I none. 
Am I telling you the truth? Silver and gold have I none. He didn't even play banker or accountant in the budding Jesus movement. Turns out one of his 12 disciples carried the money bag. Peter, on this particular day, when he's going up to the temple in Jerusalem to pray, he is not struggling with that choice that he made and what it led to. Silver and gold have I none. He's not struggling with it. Maybe he did struggle with it shortly after Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, He did go to the Sea of Galilee and take up his nets and go fishing uh, for a day. And uh, so we might say, was he struggling with not having any means by which to support himself on that day? Maybe he was. I think he was. But it was only for a day. He's not struggling with it now. He's very conscious of it. He realizes his financial situation. He is very plain when he says, silver and gold have I none. When Jesus called Peter and the other Galilean fishermen and a Galilean tax collector and the other apostles, well, when he, specifically when he called the fishermen, there was uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, he said, I will make you fishers of men. And the Bible says that Peter and the other fishermen left their nets and followed Jesus. And we take leaving their nets to be a very significant decision on their part. It was the decision to leave their livelihood, to leave their career, to leave their means of making money, and to follow Jesus. And where did that choice to follow Jesus get them? It got them to right here, Acts chapter 3. Silver and gold have I none. Wow. Peter knew what he had or what he didn't have. Nothing in terms of silver and gold, but he had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He said, but such as I have, give I, give I thee, he said in Acts chapter 3. Am I right? But he was okay with not having silver or gold. He had the faith. He had a call. He had an anointing. He had a mission. He had something to die for. He had things to pray about. Remember, he was on the way to the temple to pray. He had things to pray about, but he didn't have silver or gold. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. The ninth hour. uh, The day started at 6 a.m., we believe. So the ninth hour was 3 p.m. It's called the hour of prayer. But uh, let me fast forward to the 21st century. Who prays at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Do people actually pray at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Most Christians pray first thing in the morning, last thing at night. 
There's nothing wrong with praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. For, for the most of us, 3 o'clock in the afternoon is when you're at work. When you're earning your nickel. It's work time. Unless you work the night shift. Unless you're in the medical field that's, you know, it's got to be lively 24-7. That's the time when most people work to earn their money. But Peter was not working at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to earn his money. He was doing God's work. And he was praying. Such a life the choice to go down a path where you are likely to be saying, silver and gold have I none, but instead you're praying, such a life is not for everybody. Can I hear an amen? Amen. But if you said amen to that, would you also say amen to this? But it's not a life for nobody. It's not a life for everybody, but it's not a life for nobody. It's got to be a life for somebody. Somebody's got to be willing to make those choices. There was John, Peter, James, Andrew, Bartholomew, and the other of the twelve disciples. Let me be plain this morning. Let me be plain. Pursuing money dampens the fire to pursue Jesus. It's like the unavoidable truth. If you are going to be driven to pursue money, it's going to be very hard to be driven to pursue Jesus. One displaces the other. They're like oil and water. They they do not mix. Pursuing money can become a controlling pursuit in our lives. And that would mean that Jesus is not the controlling pursuit of our lives. We can only be controlled by one pursuit. I'm very serious when I talk about the preference for following Jesus and the preference for the will of God over money, ahead of money, my wife and I have lived it. It was a choice for us to, and I'm going to ask for your forgiveness right off the bat for talking about myself so much this morning, but I, I feel like I should. I've told you most of these things in the past, but a new set of people comes along over time. Uh, Young people that haven't heard about their pastor's personal life. It's important for a church to know something about their pastor and his personal life. Uh, Young people come along, new people come to the church, are added to the church that haven't heard this. So forgive me, please. Uh, I've told you in the past about how, when I was uh, dating my wife's sister, Kathy, back when the mastodons and the saber-toothed tigers roamed the earth, that I felt compelled to take her out to dinner where I could best afford it, Hyde's Hot Dogs. 
and sit her down there with each of us having a hot dog and a milk, a chocolate milk probably, and rather than assume that she understood some things about me, make clear some things about my future, what God was telling me, before we got to the point of engagement, I told her I believed that I was a pastor. I've shared with you in the past. She was the first person that I shared my call with, the first, the first person I told that I believed that God wanted me to be a pastor someday, even though I had already believed it for a couple years. I was keeping my cards close to my chest, so to speak. And I told her, this would mean two things. There were two things on my heart that I wanted to warn her about. And I actually told her, I don't know if I was brutal about it or what, but it worked out. I said, if, these aren't gonna, if this is not going to be okay with you, we're going to have to go our separate ways, even though I loved her. In the end, I have to jump to the end of the story. She said, oh, I knew all that stuff about you already. I'm, I wouldn't want it any other way. Praise God. Hallelujah. <laughs> that went well. <laughs> but I told her those two things were our privacy. We would not be able to be our own little private unit, independent, and just answer only to ourselves. And the other thing was poverty. I thought, I believe that we would experience poverty. She was okay with it. We got married. Six months into our marriage, uh, we had been talking about starting Living Word Academy. I wanted in. I, six months when we were into our marriage, which was about six, eight months, I haven't figured out the timeline, before Living Word Academy started, I applied for the job of English education at Living Word Academy. I was 20 years old when I applied for the job. I don't remember if I was asked to apply for the job or if I took the initiative myself. I don't remember. But I applied for the job, and applying for the job consisted of a meeting with Brother Bob and Brother Lulavani in the kitchen of the building down the street. We met in front of the stoves. And I told them, I have to be part of Living Word Academy. I am called. This is God's will for my life. Uh, you, you have to have an English teacher. The kids will not be well served if they don't have an English teacher. Very important part of the curriculum. And they just stood there listening. No nodding. You know, I'm looking for a little one of these. None of that. There, wasn't, there weren't any of these either. Nothing. I understand now. Later on, I understand. Number one, a 20-year-old is talking to them. Number two, the church was taking a huge risk by starting Living Word Academy, including a financial risk. And they're thinking, are we going to be able to pay our teachers? How many teachers can we afford? And so on and so forth. I got no clue from them. Do you remember how Brother Bob could be very poker poker face, sort of, you know, you might say not giving you any clue to what he's thinking. Well, I got no clue from them what they were thinking. So I went home and I told my wife of six months, 
I was still only 20 years old. I was about to turn 21. Going on 21. I said, "Uh, I don't think that went very well. I said I was called. They said nothing. I said I was anointed. They didn't even nod. I said I had to work there. Got nothing from them. Kathy, I may have to work at the school for nothing. I may have to work as a 100% volunteer. I promise I'll take care of you. I will take care of you. If I have to work all night, every night, I'll do it. And lo and behold, they hired me. Praise God. Got the job. Had a kid. Had a kid when I was a few days 21. When the school started, my child was about six months old. We were eating a lot of beans in order to make our uh, budget. There was no budget. It was just hand to mouth. You know, it came in, it went out. It came in, it went out. In order to reduce our um, expenses, we ate beans once, twice, three times a week, chicken. Steak was out of the question. But we still had pasta Sunday. That's an expensive meal. We kept having pasta Sunday, and we paid all our bills. There were tears sometimes. I don't want to throw my wife under the bus, but it scared her big time in the early years. There were tears late at night, the two of us in the bed, crying, me trying to comfort her, sometimes brute that I was, just kind of trying to yell at her and shock her out of her fear didn't work very well. What are we going to do? Her, was her concern. There's no money to pay the bills. I'm looking forward at the bills, and I'm looking forward at the income, and it's not going to happen. We'll be, I just ch- kept trying to comfort her. Well, it, we paid all our bills. We didn't miss any of our payments. And we didn't go to the store and buy our children suits and dresses and outfits and even uh, uh, nice shirts, or play shirts, play pants. The only thing we went to the store to buy was socks and underwear for our children. Where did the rest come from? You. You guys. You guys dressed my children. And they were very well outfitted all the time. It wasn't until after Isaiah graduated from high school that we started buying my granddaughter Nadia clothes at the, at the children's store. I, I'm going to repeat my apology. I'm not used to talking about myself so much. When Living Word Academy started, I had it on my heart, believed that the boys needed an athletic program and started a soccer team uh, towards the end of the summer that first year. And we had my one soccer ball. I happened to own a soccer ball. And we had my one soccer ball and a team trying to practice one ball. So in the middle of that stress, I go to my wife. I'll never forget this. I go to my wife and I say, honey, We need balls for the soccer team. Is it okay if we take our savings account and go buy balls for the soccer team? It meant emptying our savings account. Do you know what she said? Yes. 
Yep, it's okay. And there goes the savings account. And praise the Lord, there have been a few times in our Christian walk when we have emptied the savings account for Jesus. I was a carpenter during vacations. You know, school teachers have uh, nice vacations, a week off at Christmas and a week off midwinter, a week off in the spring, a few days for uh, Easter sometimes, a few days for Thanksgiving sometimes. I worked every day of every vacation except for the holiday itself. I couldn't work on Christmas Day if I wanted to. Everything was shut down on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Every other day, I worked. But I did not work the last couple weeks of summer because I had a soccer team to coach. And if there was something going on at school, I was there at school rather than swinging a hammer. I didn't miss church. I was here every Sunday. I never worked on a Sunday. After I became a pastor in the 1980s, I quit working for pay at all uh, as, a, as a construction worker. I still did a lot of construction here around the church, but I didn't do it for pay anymore. I did that. It was on my heart. It was something I felt I needed to do in order to focus on God's call in my life and service to the church. And I didn't want to be divided and be thinking about so many things at once. I wasn't sure what would happen to us financially when I stopped doing carpentry work for pay. But I believed that I needed to be sanctified. And I didn't think that uh, these kinds of, this kind of zealous thinking and zealous devotion to Jesus and putting financial matters aside almost more than boldly, almost foolishly, you might say, I didn't think that that should end all of a sudden when I got a little older, had a little bigger family, had larger financial responsibilities. So I stopped carpentry work for pay. What did it mean? It mean I never went out for breakfast with the brothers. They would have paid for me, but I I didn't want to be a mooch. You know what a mooch is? Is the word mooch still used? Young people, that means, you know, just kind of tagging along and getting other people to pay for you and give you stuff rather than hold your own and support yourself. I didn't want to be a mooch. Didn't have money to buy a newspaper. We bought one newspaper a week, the Sunday paper, and that's because it was financially advantageous. My wife would cut all the coupons out of the Sunday paper and many times multiply the value of the Sunday paper compared to what it costs. Sometimes my wife spent so many hours cutting coupons and keeping a file of coupons. Actually, her file of coupons was stolen from her at one point out of her grocery cart. It was quite valuable. One time I said, honey, why don't you just stop doing that? That is an awful lot of work. You're spending a lot of hours doing that. She goes, yeah, well, I figured out how many hours I spend cutting coupons and how much money it saves us. I'm paying myself between $20 and $40 an hour. And I said, honey, you just keep cutting those coupons. You need another pair of scissors? (laughs) 
uh, when I was on the, uh, the carpentry job, the boss would say, okay, we're going to go uh, take a break soon. Anybody want to chip in a couple dollars to go buy donuts and coffee and so on? And I would always say, nothing for me, thanks, I'm good. I didn't have a dollar or two in my pocket. How I brought my lunch to work, even at Living Word Academy, it saved a couple dollars a week. How were we going to pay tuition when one kid, we had to pay for one, and then we had to pay for two, and then we had to pay for three? I'll tell you, we paid tithes and we paid our tuition. Always, always paid tithes and tuition. And um, my daughter, Corey, started pre-K something like 40 years ago. It was 40 years ago. That's when tuition started. And we're still not done paying tuition for somebody. We had a couple years off in there someplace, I think. If, it never, if we never stop paying tuition for somebody, someplace, somehow, that will be fine with me. Now listen, we're comfortable now. Don't, don't even think about it for a second. We're comfortable now. It has come to us. We didn't make it happen. We didn't go out and get it. And spare me, please, having to share the details. I can... Uh, authorize Sister Terry and uh, Brother Isaiah and Corinne and Corey. You can ask them, is, is uh, Brother Brian the pastor, is he, a, is he a generous giver? I authorize them to say thumbs up, yes, or thumbs no down. That's good enough. Thank you for chuckling. Look, I'm sorry. I apologize at the beginning, now I'm going to apologize at the end. I do not want you to know more about me than you know about Jesus or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul. I want you to know more about the Bible than you know about me. But it is right and proper for you to know something about the, the pastor who teaches you the Word of God. Come to my house anytime. I'll never forget Paul Malaya gives me a phone call. Brother Brian, I have something on my heart. I really think I need to talk with you. Oh, okay, Brother Paul. When would you like to talk? Right now. I'm in your driveway. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like Paul Malaya? Yeah. Oh, come on in, Brother Paul. (laughs) And I'm talking about this zeal I had for, I was just on fire for serving Jesus and willing to take the concerns of money and monetary support and the quality of our lives and just shove it off to the side. And I want to say, this church and the Living Word Academy today, today could not exist if there weren't many people doing that very thing right now. Amen? Right now, they're doing the very, they have the very same attitude, the very same, the very same drive. Praise the Lord. Okay, back to Peter now. Chapter 4, verse 32. 
It says, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. This is maybe weeks or months after Peter said, silver and gold have I none. And now all these people, literally thousands of people are coming into the church, and many of them who have properties are selling their properties and bringing the money and laying it at the apostles' feet. And we might say, there you go, Peter. You had, you had to say, silver and gold have I none, but a couple weeks or maybe a couple months later, you struck it rich, baby. There you go. People are all laying their money at your feet. Preaching is a a good way to riches after all. You should all be shaking your head. No, that's not the way it was. Look, a lot of money was coming in and what was happening to all of it? Going out. It was coming in and it was going out. Did you read the last part of, uh, what is it, verse um, 35? The last part of verse 35? Distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Peter wasn't getting rich. The church was handling a lot of monetary resources, but the money was going in and the money was going out. Distribution. Let me show you another money issue from the very early history of the church. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. They were, this is one of the couples that did the very thing that we just read about. They sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Notice what Peter said. It was that Ananias lied. It wasn't specifically that he kept back of the part of the price. I'm sure the possession was his. He could do with the possession what he wanted. The church was going to be thankful for whatever he gave in support of the church. What Peter didn't like was some lying that was going on. It was the lying. And in particular, it was lying about what he was giving. He was saying that he was giving more than he was giving. He was defrauding. He was, uh, he, was, he was lying about what he was giving. Well, verse 4 says, Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? 
Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came upon all that, them that heard these things. The man died right there in the congregation. And I just want to stress that the issue was not that Ananias didn't give it all. The issue was that he lied. Peter was insisting on integrity in the church even when it came to the issue of money. And not only integrity for the church leadership, integrity for everybody, nobody was going to be allowed to say who wanted to give, look, it's all my own business, I'll give what I want, you just stay out of my business. Okay, people, if you said, stay out of my business, I'm sure the church would stay out of your business, of course. But if you were going to open up to your business, to the church, you had to be truthful about it and honest about it. No lying. Credibility. This was coming from Peter. He was a man who understood leaving what you owned and leaving your means of monetary support. He was not some high-up, elevated, self-appointed, God-like judge looking down at the peons below him. He had given it all up himself. He had nothing left to give up. And he wasn't going to have shady dealing. He would die before he would allow shady dealing inside the church. Likewise, I'm not looking for a pat on the back for what my wife and I experienced. I do, however, hope that my testimony creates credibility. Peter had credibility. I hope my testimony creates credibility for me and also a sort of comparing. Now you can compare yourself to me or you can compare yourself to a dozen people at Living Word Academy and Living Word Church who, who are living the same testimony. This is not a one-off testimony in our midst. But why share it? Because God must call others there are others that are going to have to step up who have not experienced this yet, who have not taken these steps yet, who have not done this yet. And if the church will go forward and continue, they will have to step up. A new set, a new generation will have to step up and make these kinds of sacrifices and decisions. Better than calling them sacrifices, let's call them decisions. Sacrifices, are they really? I'll tell you, I've been, I've been the winner, not the loser. Not a sacrifice. But a new generation is going to have to take their heart before the throne of grace and think about their position in life and feel the fire of God in their hearts and be moved by the fire of God and passion for Jesus Christ and the church of God 
and say, I'm putting all of that stuff for me aside. If it's going to come to me, it's going to come to me of its own. I'm not going to go out and get it. It's got to come to me. God must call others. We have to remind a new set of people. Money is not an untouchable issue. In fact, the Word of God has a great deal to say about the godly use of money. All of these Bible examples are coming to us from the early church. From the early church. From the church just being born. That's when you get money issues settled for the most part, if you ask me. Early. Early on. For instance, I am so glad my wife and I started the way we started. It made it so much easier. You you don't know how many times my wife told me, don't get in debt. Don't get in debt. Because if you get in debt, you're not going to be able to turn on a dime for Jesus. You're not going to be able to make big decisions about your walk with the Lord if you're in debt. The debt is going to control you instead of Jesus. Don't get in debt. It was like her mantra in my ear. Well, we don't take collections in our church, do we? Right, brothers and sisters? We don't take collections in our church. If you're visiting here or you're fairly new here, perhaps you've noticed that. We haven't in our, in our history as a church. Someone has informed me that there, there were a time or two for special uh, issues when we did. Uh, I don't recall them. Perhaps I was in Rochester preaching the gospel at that time. I don't think we're going to take a collection here until the Lord returns. What do you think? I think until the Lord returns, we won't. But, brothers and sisters, suppose I retire and a younger, younger pastor comes along and takes my position and I'm retired, and he decides, well, come on, I think we should start taking a collection for this reason and that, and he brings it before the elders, and the elders discuss it, and he discusses it, and they, they run it through the, the fire of discussion, so to speak, and they decide together that we should start taking a collection. And I'm still here, maybe retired, maybe in my old age, maybe getting rolled in on a wheelchair. I'll tell you what I pray is my response to that. Sign me up. Line me up. You, is that what the new generation of leadership has decided for our church? I'm going to support. I'm going to support. I'm not going to be a stick in the mud and insist that it's because we did it that way previously, we have to do it that way again. Because I did it that way, we have to do it again. I want to be a support. I want to be an encouragement to a new generation of leadership. I want to encourage them to seek the Lord for God's will. That said, I think we're, going to, I think we're not going to have collections till the Jesus comes. It's part of our credibility, isn't it? We don't take collections because we want it to be real. We care more about your soul than we care about your bank account. We care more about your soul than we care about what you do with your money. 
And this is part of our credibility. We don't even talk about money very much. This morning is kind of odd to talk about money so much. Peter might as well be saying to Ananias in this chapter, Hey, bud, I left it all, my friend. Don't come to me and this church pretending that you've left it all when you've only left part. That is not how we build the church. Fair enough? Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 25. This has to do with Peter still. Peter and money and poverty and so on. Romans 15, 25, it says, but now I go into Jerusalem. This is the Apostle Paul talking. But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed them to this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. This is 15 or 20 years after Peter said, In Jerusalem, silver and gold have I none. And what we learn about the Jerusalem church 15 or 20 years later is that they're still quite poor. The Jerusalem church was one of the poorest churches known in the world at that time. It was poor because of the persecution that they received and the great limitations that were put on their earning power as a result of that persecution. So the Apostle Paul went around Macedonia and Achaia talking to the local churches around there and saying, brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ started in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church, they don't even have the means to feed themselves. Will you guys help them out? Give and help them out. I'll carry your contributions back to them. Now, I don't know, 15 or 20 years after, Peter said, silver and gold have I none, if Peter was still in Jerusalem. I'm not sure if he was still in Jerusalem after all those years went by. But if he was, he was still going to the temple at the hour of prayer saying, silver and gold have I none. He accepted that. Romans 12.1 if you will. Can I hear a hallelujah? hallelujah. Romans 12.1. The Apostle Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Brother Don shared on the, out of this passage Wednesday night. I shared with it at school during chapel in the last message that I gave to the kids during the school year. Many people, many Christians nowadays will name Christ as their Savior and claim to love Jesus in their hearts and then that it doesn't matter what they do with their bodies. 
I can love Jesus in my heart. That's what God really cares about. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. And because God only cares about the heart, by the way, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It doesn't even say that when it says God looks inside the heart, that he only cares about the heart. And they'll say, as long as I love Jesus in my heart, I can do anything I want with my time, with my energy, with my work, with my body. The rest is mine. Jesus has my heart. The rest is mine. The Apostle Paul would totally disagree with that doctrine, wouldn't he? Present your body a living sacrifice. How do you present your body? You present your time, your energy, your money, your thought, your schedule, your footwork, your space. That's how you present your body, a living sacrifice. If you love Jesus, you can't do anything you want with your body because what you do with your body may prove you to be a hypocrite. You're not free, this is one of the points I stressed at school, you're not free with your body to go in debt. I love Jesus in my heart, so now I can go in debt financially. I love him in my heart. I can do what I want. Going in debt is my privilege. Proverbs 22.7 says, The borrower is slave to the lender. The borrower is slave to the lender. When you go into debt, you become a slave to the financial institution or to the lender. If a servant or a slave to the lender, then that much less a servant of God. How many masters can one slave serve? It is possible to misuse the seek ye first the kingdom of God verse and the seek ye first the kingdom of God principle. It's very easy to misuse that principle and let me explain. If I say Jesus is first, come on, Jesus is first in my heart, Jesus is first in my life, well, what's second? My wife. Third, my family. Fourth, country. Fifth, my friends. Sixth, couple hobbies. Six and seven. Eighth, ninth, tenth. What's happening to the pie that represents your life? You know, suppose I bring a nice pie or a nice cake to the dinner table for dessert. Got a nice big pie here and 24 people to serve. You, honored guest, are going to get the very first piece because you are the most important to us today. Here's your first piece. And the guest looks and says, kind of cheap. That's one bite. Oh, but it's the first bite. All right. I'll take the last bite if it was bigger. See what happens in our lives? We say Jesus is first, but we cut up the pie of our lives into so many slices that he gets very little. 
Jesus gets next to nothing. Oh, but he gets the first piece. But it's so small, it's cheap. You wouldn't give your guest such a small piece. i got to run to the bakery. We need more pie. Uh, let me um, admit that there are good debts. I think there are good and sensible debts that are justified because it would simply take too long to pay cash, for instance, for a house. I think a mortgage is a good uh, debt because what are you supposed to do? Wait uh, 15 years in order to have a house? And it's going to be very difficult to build up the equity necessary. It's just a financially wise decision to use a debt, debt to pay for a house. It's a great thing to have, and it's a, it's a reasonable and justified thing to pay for over a long period of time and even rack up the interest. But shouldn't we, it, doesn't it matter a little bit what house we choose? Right? Just choose a house that's within your means so it doesn't become a burden and it doesn't become a slave driver with a whip at your back. Because a mortgage is a reasonable debt, a justified debt, doesn't mean it should, it can be any size whatsoever. Let's be in control so Jesus is first in our lives. Amen? A little practical advice there. I think some debt for college education may be justified. You, you kind of get one shot at whether you get to have a college education or not. It'll have a huge impact on the quality of your life. The Lord could use your college education and may be justified to go in debt for it. But it's not justified to use the, the loaning institutions and the financial aid package that you get for pleasure for fun, for a really expensive car instead of a very much an economy car. Believe it or not, brothers and sisters, the financial aid packages enable the kids to buy cars nowadays. Don't increase the amount of your student debt for the sake of fun, pleasure, pride, glory, titillation. Keep that debt as low as possible. And you know why? So that you can serve God. So that you can put Jesus first. So that you're free. Example, Brother Isaiah. Graduated with no debt. No college debt. Zero college debt. Master's degree. Zero college debt. He could work at Living Word Academy as the principal and not have to go, oh my gosh, what am I doing? He didn't have to worry that way. The debt wasn't a whip on his back. How many people are stopped from serving the Lord in a greater way by the shackles of debt and the pull of monetary ambition? Here's the promise of God. Psalm 113 verse 7 says, God raiseth up the poor out of the dust. He lifted the needy out of the dunghill that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. God will make it come to you. It will come to you. You don't have to go out and get it. 
You might say, oh, I know how the world works. If you don't go, go out and get it, it, you won't have it. Oh, that's what my father, you know, that's what his mantra was. His, my father's mantra was, there's never enough money. There's never enough money. There's never enough money. Finally, at one point, I said, Dad, Dad, how about if we say it a little different way? There's always enough money. There's always enough money. There's always enough money. As a young man, this verse was very important to me. If you will turn to it, please. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. This is from one of the songs of the servant, but it, it was very inspiring to me. I know it's about Jesus, not me, but it still was a, an inspiring example to me. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 says, For the Lord God will help me. That was a mantra for me. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be confounded. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Praise God. I know that I shall not be ashamed. Flinty determination. This is uh, a verse. It was nicely done in calligraphy, and we have it on our mantelpiece at home to to this day. The flinty determination of these words and the, and the part of the verse that says, I shall not be ashamed, meant so much to me as a young person when we were really, honestly, we were in poverty. We went to Wick. We had heap insulate our house. I mean, we were, we were making use of every program that we possibly could. We went to a, a health uh, center at St. Joe's where we paid, I think it was $5 or $7 a doctor's visit. Uh, we would go into debt when our children were born, you know, because the hospital bill, was, we couldn't pay the hospital bill. And I remember when we uh, paid off one of our children, I came home and I said, honey, we, I, maybe it was Brother Isaiah, honey, we own Isaiah outright now. This I shall not be ashamed. This flinty determination was to stare down shame. Stare down shame. Fiercely. I was 20. I was 21. I was 22. I was 25. Stare down shame like a man. Like a real man. With flinty determination. And one of the things to stare down was the shame of poverty. I understand the shame of poverty, and I will never look down at a poor person because of our experience. When my brethren come to me and they talk to me about how they're in financial trouble and they're under the, behind the eight ball and they can't make ends meet, they get sympathy from me. I don't look down at them. I understand where they've been. There is shame and poverty, a humbling, humiliation, the smallness. At the time in our marriage, when we had the greatest poverty, my older brother Victor, who many of you know, had a prestigious job that put him in the best neighborhoods of the most expensive cities, Toronto, San Francisco, Atlanta, London, England. He got invited to a tea with Queen Elizabeth, a garden tea party. At one point, he bought an apartment in Wall Street in Manhattan. But in the end, he was alone. In the end, his money didn't save him. 
He asked to come and live with me and live in our basement apartment. He was tormented by the fear of poverty. Even though he had hundreds of thousands of dollars in his savings account and an investment portfolio, he was tormented by fear. I know that he doesn't, where he is right now, he doesn't mind me telling you these things. He's telling, he's saying, baby brother, tell him. His anxiety over money threw him over the edge of mental and emotional disaster. Not financial disaster, mental disaster, anxiety, agony over money drove him crazy until he took his own life. He moved away from us eventually. He was living in a halfway home for troubled souls. One morning, I came, we came home from church, pull in the driveway, and there's a police car in the parking lot. I, there were two officers there, DeWitt police officers. I walk up to them and I say, they don't say a word to me. They haven't said a word to me. I shake my head and I said, oh, my brother Victor took his life. They looked a little shocked. How'd you know? I know him. I just called him on the phone a couple days ago. We invited him to dinner. He didn't come. I know he was struggling. You can say, oh, I'm strong. I'm strong. I know how to handle it. I know how to handle all the pieces of the pie. I know how to keep Jesus first. I'm stretching it. I'm stretching it, but I'm strong enough and I know how to make it happen. Let me tell you, number one, you don't know how strong or how weak you are. My brother was a very capable, intelligent, and smart man. Second of all, I want to tell you that Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. And whenever we human beings refuse the call of Jesus, that is insanity. That is insanity. One of the hardest things I've had to do in my life is face down the shame of poverty. Face it down. Look it right in the face and say, you are not going to make me ashamed. In the end, I will not be confounded. I will not be ashamed because the Lord God helps me. The Lord God is on my side. When I was young, I'm telling you, I was just so on fire for the Lord. I could put what we might call the sensible... Uh, the sensible cautions aside. I just would push them aside. Got saved and put the pedal to the metal. You say, oh, I'm wise. You should, you should pace yourself. You tell me that? If you would have told me when I was a young person, pace yourself, Brother Brian, I would have said, get thee behind me, Satan. I got the pedal to the metal. You savor the things that be of men. I'm going to serve the Lord. And I'll be honest with you, brothers and sisters, I am not today, I confess to you from the depth of my heart, I am not today the man that I was. I wish I today I was half so on fire for the Lord. Moldered, kind of tired, too wise. I've told you many times, if I could have only one, you can, you can have both, but if I could have only one, wisdom or strength, I would choose strength. We can have both. Praise God. Isn't that great? We could have both. Wisdom and strength. 
more than I pray that I could be just as on fire as I was in my 20s, I pray that there are other 20-year-olds in the church and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who are that on fire for the Lord. Your being on fire for the Lord will be more to this church than my being on fire for the Lord. The best days of this church are ahead, but it is going to take us keeping Jesus number one and all other things in comparison to him small. He gets a big piece of the pie. And if we run out of pieces of pie for all the 20 other things, so what? As long as Jesus gets a great big piece, all he wants. Uh, Jesus, you get all you want. We're not going to start, you know, uh, slivering. Oh, Father God, in the name of Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We pray for your will to be done in our church. We pray for a strong young generation to rise up who puts you first. Oh, Lord, for a strong young people that put you first. And we pray that the idol, the Asherah, the Baal of the almighty dollar is not raised up in our, in our midst. That that idol is chopped down at every chance, chopped down at every occasion. That we honor you, O oh Lord, because your sacrifice on Calvary's cross has opened the doors to the throne of grace so we may boldly come in for help in time of need. Oh God, be our help. Be our help in times of need. May we not lean on the arm of the flesh. May, O oh Lord, instead we put you first in all things, knowing that you raise the poor from the dunghill. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. You raise up the poor from his needy place. Oh, God, you are not unmindful of the, of the needs of your people. You care for them, oh, Lord. But you have priorities, too. And we want to honor them from our hearts just like you honor them in your heart. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. And, O oh Lord, in closing, I want to just say to you, I'm so thankful for all the people who are giving, giving of themselves without regard to their financial situations, who are giving of themselves in, in service to this church and to your kingdom. In Jesus' holy name, I thank you for them. Amen. Praise God. Have a wonderful day. That's it for this morning. Praise God.